going to be reading four areas of text this morning. And uh, I'm going to do that very, at the very first right here. We're going to pray and then I'm going to do that. And so you'll want to get your thumb or your Bible marked in Matthew 11, 17. I'm sorry, I've got them listed there. Matthew 26, 26, 28. Mark 14, 22, 24. Luke 22, 19 and 20. And then again, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 33. Now I'll go back to those in just a minute and you won't have any trouble, but that's where we're going this morning. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the wonderful worship. And indeed, there is none like you. You are the only one. You are the faithful one. And we love you. God, I pray that today will be a time of us learning, opening up all of our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears, Lord, and let us see and hear what you want to speak to us about today concerning communion or the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Matthew 26 Verses 26 through 28. Now I'm going to um, read these and then I'm going to do a little introduction. In Matthew 26, 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Turn over to Mark chapter 14, verse 22 through 24. While they were eating, he took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Sounds very familiar. Turn over to Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Luke adds these words that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Whereas Matthew and Mark did not record that. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now only... Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, record the specifics of what Jesus said regarding the bread and the cup. John does not, although John records in, I think it's John 13, records about the Last Supper. He does not go into those details. He goes into some other details. So we're not going to look at John's account. 
But Paul, in his writing to the Corinthians, draws on those accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and specifically Luke, and also what the Lord had given to him. So I want us to read 1 Corinthians 11, but we're going to read the context around some things. We're going to start at verse 17. And here's what Paul writes to the Corinthians. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now remember, they had a meal when they participated in communion or the Lord's Supper or the Covenant Supper or the Love Feast or whatever they called it in that day. It was a big meal. Verse 21, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So I'm going to get into some details of what Paul's talking about here later on. But he goes on to say in verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup in the new covenant is my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner may be shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So I'm going to get into that and explain what that means, because I think there's been some misunderstanding and errant teaching surrounding this unworthy manner. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that he will not be condemned, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, brethren, my brethren and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So that's within context of what Paul is is talking about here. Now, I want you to give me 30 minutes. And during that 30 minutes, I'm going to ask you to set aside everything that you have heard or have believed 
about communion. As it relates to the Lord's Supper or communion, we're going to set aside tradition because a lot of what we do is tradition. As I said, they didn't pass this out in the first century church. It was a huge meal. It's devolved into this little cup and a piece of bread for us modern, sophisticated people. I want you to set aside tradition. I want you to set aside your, and every one of us here has come from some kind of denomination. Set aside your denominational creeds, the errant teaching on the subject, and simply look, what we're going to do this morning is simply look at the biblical text. Our thoughts and our doctrine about communion or about any, anything really that's related to, related to doctrine and theology. What it is and what it isn't, why we do it, how we do it, and many other questions have to be informed by what the biblical text says and not by what a certain denomination teaches or what we have traditionally been understood to, to, to do. Okay, so we've got, we're, um, I, I promise I, I will stick with this Bible. Now, that may sound harsh, but I believe God desires for us to understand the practices of our faith. And unfortunately, mu much of what, teaching that has surrounded uh, and that has drawn for, I think mostly unintentionally, is in error. Uh, I don't think we can fully go back to the way that communion was held in the first century every month. I mean, we, we could if we wanted. We could have a big meal every month that celebrates communion, the Lord's Supper, that is done to remember what he has done for us and to uh, proclaim his death until he comes. We could do that. Um, and maybe we will. I don't know. However, I think it's important for us to know the history here as, as the first century Christians referred to this covenant meal. Obviously for us, we can't call what we are doing today a meal. This does not constitute a meal, uh, as none of us will be filled by eating one little bitty uh, styrofoam-tasting wafer of cracker and a small thimble of juice. Uh, I would dare say most of you are going to go home hungry today and eat lunch. <laughs> Yet in the first century, it really was a meal. It was a dinner. It was a supper. Uh, that's evident by Paul's words there in 1 Corinthians 11, where he refers to it as a supper. And I hope that perhaps sometime in some future event, we might be able to experience this real meal together for the purpose of remembering the Lord's sacrifice and celebration of love for the brethren and the fellowship of the brethren and the hope of our Lord's future return. But I want to ask you a question and begin this with why do we observe communion? Why do we observe communion? 
Before we answer that question, I want to examine what communion isn't. Okay, so this is what it isn't. It isn't the literal body and blood of Jesus. There are some denominations that believe this uh, doctrine, and it is called the uh, doctrine of transubstantiation. And they believe that the bread and the wine literally become the body and the blood of Christ. When Jesus tells us to take the bread, which is his body, and the wine, which is his blood, he is speaking in an allegory. We are not, you know, and, and, and in John 6, it's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't address the Last Supper because he's talking in a different context and in a different situation and several chapters removed from uh, John 13 when he talks about, or when he's in the Last Supper. But in John chapter 6, he tells them about eating his, he is the bread and eating his body is the bread and the blood is, is the wine is the blood and drinking is uh, blood. And he said, does this offend you? And they didn't understand. And in fact, several disciples after that kind of left him. But that is not the last supper. So he's speaking in an allegory here where he says, this is my body. This is my blood of the new covenant. So it isn't his literal body and blood. It also isn't a time when Jesus somehow mystically uh, or his spirit mystically enters into the bread and the wine or mystically surrounds it and communion somehow brings a greater presence of God than already exists. You cannot increase God's presence. He is here. And why is he here? Because You are his temple and he is dwelling inside of you. So you cannot increase just by having communion, thinking that, oh, this is going to be a mystical time, a spiritual time where that God's going to, uh, his spirit's going to come down and do just miraculous and great things. He'll do those all the time if we're willing. It also isn't a means for God to provide salvation or sanctification to someone when they partake of the bread and the cup. That's not the purpose. And although it is always appropriate to ask for forgiveness and to repent of unconfessed sin, there is nothing special about doing it just before you take communion. You know, God is not going to somehow strike you down if you take communion when you have anger against your brother who's sitting across the room. Just as he is not going to strike you down if you have that same anger sitting in your home against your brother who's sitting across town. It's always a good time if we have anger, to ask for forgiveness. There's nothing special about doing it right before communion. We are the temple of God, no matter where we are or what we are doing. This idea that we have to ask for this forgiveness comes from, a mis, I believe, a misinterpretation or a misrepresentation of 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and 28, which we read. And we'll get into that later and explain more of that later. There are really only two reasons 
given in the text of the Bible why we should take communion. And both of those are in Luke's account and in Paul's account in his writing to the Corinthians. Remember the Lord's death and to proclaim it, the gospel, until he comes. That's it. Why take communion? To remember the Lord's death and to proclaim his death, which is the gospel, until he comes. That's it. That's why we take communion. It's not to get salvation. It's not for any special healing. It's not for any special forgiveness. It's to remember what Christ has done and proclaim it till he returns. Now, um, let's talk about the components of this Lord's Supper uh, before I share some thoughts with you from 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10, 11. Uh, the Lord's Supper held a significant place in the early church because it embodied some of the major features of the Christian life. Let's first look at the cup. The cup, it tells us, he says it represents the blood of Christ. It is the new covenant in his blood. Leviticus 17, 11 says that life is in the blood. Jesus says that he is our living water. The NIV reads John 7, 37 and 38. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus is... His, the cup represents his blood. This represents this new covenant that we have. Jesus is our food and our drink. That's basically what he's saying. You don't need anything else. Then the broken bread. It speaks of the humanity of Jesus. Jesus lowered himself to become one of us. Think about that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. It speaks to the humanity of Jesus. It points to the humility and the availability of our Lord Philippians 2.8 says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as I've shared communion before with, uh, with you, I've mentioned that if you think about it, bread is the most basic of foods, pretty much available to all. You can make bread with, I'm not a chef, but you can make bread with a little flour and water and dough and you got a biscuit <laughs> maybe a little lard I don't know or something uh may not a very good biscuit but yet you've got a biscuit so bread is the most basic of foods it's available to everyone 
Uh, Jesus is accessible to all. No one is excluded. So when we talk about the bread, we're talking about him being available to everyone. I feel, I feel compelled to say this because this is a special day. This is the day that we celebrate uh, America's birthday. Uh, I was figuring it up. I don't think I'll be here for the 300th, but I think I'll make the 250th because that's only five years away. But the 300th, eh, I'll probably be 118. Now, Pastor Temple might, might still be hanging around. I don't know. But... Uh, I'm not planning on making the 300th, but this is a special day. We celebrate America's birthday, and, and we love America. We, we honor things about America. But Jesus isn't an American savior, okay? I do believe God blesses different countries, and we aren't the only country that's blessed by God. But there are no nations that God loves more than other nations. There are no people groups that God loves more than other people groups, it's just, it's not how it is. There's nothing in scripture that says God blesses America and makes them prosperous and uh, he is their special people. And again, I love America and don't want to go, I don't even want to go anywhere else, much live anywhere else. The broken bread is a symbol that Christ is available to all people all people groups and all people in, are the same in his eyes. It re also reminds us of the broken body of Christ on the cross. Bread is made from crushed, from flour, which is crushed wheat. Wine is made from crushed grapes. This crushing represents a death um, in Galatians chapter 2. Paul writes these words in 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Whenever we, you eat the bread and drink the cup, Paul, and, uh, Paul says you, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So the broken bread reminds us about his broken body, but it also reminds us that we too, you and I, must become broken before we can become something of value and usefulness to the kingdom of God. God does not like the prideful and the arrogant. Psalm 51:16 he says the sacrifice the Lord desires is a broken and contrite spirit, a broken heart and contrite spirit. That's what he desires. But this broken bread also is, uh, represents life and resurrection because the grain of wheat goes into the ground and it brings forth life. Just as the manna that was poured down from heaven was life to the Israelites. It was some, well, I don't even know what it was, but it was some kind of a, substance that God gave them, some kind of breadish substance. It was what they needed to survive and what they needed to live. And as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are reminded that Jesus is the bread of life. 
He is the drink where we will never thirst again. Jesus uh, is this bread of life, the living bread that gives life. He's the only bread that we need to obtain life. And there's something else unique about the bread, and that is, if you'll notice, it says Jesus took the bread and broke it. There, it, it was originally one piece. So this, this bread represents a oneness, a unity. Pastor Jeff did an excellent job last week with his uh, diverse, uh, unity amidst diversity. Okay? There was this oneness, this unity in the body of Christ. There was one loaf and it was shared among those partaking in the supper. Because there is one, and here's what uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17. He says, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So I want to talk a little bit about the problem. Man, the, the time goes so quickly. But I want to talk a little bit about the problem that Paul was addressing here. To get a proper context for, of what Paul was addressing, we have to look at the, con, at the text in its context. And to do that, we really need to go back up to chapter 8, 9, and 10. I'm not going to preach on all that, but let me share a few things. Now, I listened to a podcast by, from a guy by the name of Michael Heiser. And he has a podcast that's called the Naked Bible Podcast. Okay? And it's very good. He's very intelligent. Really enjoy listening to him. So some, I want to give you some quotes. He has about five podcasts uh, on communion. And so I was, I, and they, if you listen to all of them, they're a little over an hour long. But uh, I picked out some things from those podcasts I want to share with you. Michael Heiser says this, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is recognized by all New Testament scholars as being a large chunk of material covering basically one subject. The matter of how hand, to handle matters of dispute among Christians, especially where there doesn't seem to be a clear contextual, I'm sorry, a clear textual basis to make a decision. The issue Paul focuses on is whether it is, was okay for believers to eat meat sacrifice to idols. That's the subject of 1 Corinthians 8. The issue Paul uh, the issue takes Paul into all sorts of issues, foreign gods, idolatry, sacrifice and how to deal with disagreements. End quote from Michael Heiser. So it's basically the same argument that Paul presents in Romans chapter 14. And his conclusion is this, it really doesn't matter what you eat. It matters how each one treats the other. In other words, if you think it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idol, that's fine. Just do it with a clear conscience. Only don't do it if it offends your brother. And if your brother thinks it's wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idol, then he shouldn't try to tell you that you're being a sinful because you do it. It matters how you treat each other. That's what Paul is trying to say. And Paul concludes that if meat causes his brother to stumble, then he says, you know what? I'm just not going to eat meat again. Now, how many would take that position? 
That's what he says. There, therefore, this is 1 Corinthians 8, 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Why? Paul was more concerned about his brother than he was his own appetite. How many can say that? So, then in chapter 9, Paul seems to take a sharp right turn and he writes about his, his worthiness of apostleship. Just a couple of quick readings here in chapter 9, verses 12 through 14. If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Again, going back and quoting Michael Heiser, he says this, quote, In the Old Testament... Part of the way an Israelite priest was paid for their service was receiving a portion of certain sacrifices. It's significant that the sacrifices of which the priest could partake were not sacrifices for atonement for sin. The priestly food came from the peace offerings in Leviticus 7, 33 through 36. So I'm going to stop quoting him and I'm going to go to Leviticus 7, 33 through 36, and just read those texts, those verses. The one among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat, the right thigh shall be his as his portion. For I have taken the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the contribution from the sons of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron, the priest, and to his sons, as their due forever for from the sons of Israel. This is that which is consecrated to Aaron and that which is consecrated to his sons from the offerings by fire to the Lord in that day when he presented them to serve as priests to the Lord. These the Lord had commanded to be given them from the sons of Israel in the day that he anointed them. It is their due forever throughout their generations." So the Israelites were instructed on what to bring and how much the priest could take. And Paul's point is that just as the Mosaic law called for priests to share in the Lord's sacrifices for their own sustenance, so too should an apostle be sustained by the people to whom he ministers. And then in chapter 10, Paul returns to this discussion about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And in verse 14 through 20, he presents a very important point about fellowship, about participation, about sharing, about communion, about distribution, or as the Greek word is, koinonia. Let's read these verses. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you, wise men, you judge what I say. I speak as to you, wise men, as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the, well, notice that word sharing, and this is from the 
NASB. Different translations may say fellowship. Some may say participation so or distribution, just depending on your translation. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. So that word, sharers or sharing, is the same word or the same word family, koinonia or koinonios in the Greek. And it's used four times there. So Paul is, what Paul is basically arguing here is that based on the Old Testament sacrificial system where the priest ate part of the sacrifice as their payment for their service, that when one partakes or participates or shares in the sacrifice and partakes of the portion of the sacrifice, then solidarity or fellowship with God is established. All of this is in context of Paul's teaching on communion in 1 Corinthians 11. You see, we have to stop taking verses out of context to inform our doctrine. It's harmful to us, and I think it's disappointing to God. We can't just grab a piece of scripture and say, oh, I understand everything I need to know about this because I've read this scripture. It just doesn't work that way. We can't just read a couple of verses and think we know all there is to know about a topic. And when Paul gets to chapter 11, we're going to see that that he views the Lord's Supper, communion, as a meal about fellowship and sharing and communion with one another. So here's the problem that he addresses. He says there's divisions among you. There's factions and cliques. You're coming together for the wrong reason. You're coming together just to have a meal and eat. That's not why we do this. You're eating your food before everyone gets there. You're getting drunk. So they weren't drinking grape juice. I got sick on grape juice, but never drunk on grape juice. You're shaming and neglecting those who may not have as much. Verse 22, where he says... What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. He said, you're eating unworthily in a manner that's in an unworthy manner. Now, most evangelicals will teach that this is, you're eating because you have unconfessed sin. And as I said earlier, it's always good to confess unconfessed sin. But Paul never says that in the text. When he says that some are eating in an unworthy manner, what he's doing is he's pointing to the abuse and the conduct of those who are participating in the supper. And he addressed what that abuse was in verses 17 through 22. 
He says, you're neglecting those who don't have anything. That's eating unworthily. You're eating too much. You're leaving, you're not leaving anything for anybody else. You're getting drunk. You're shaming those who maybe didn't have anything to bring. We had a church dinner and Keith didn't bring anything. Can you believe that? (laughs) Yet he filled up on everybody else's food. Maybe Keith didn't have anything to bring. So this unworthy manner is not some unconfessed sin. It's, it's, it's really a matter of us having to examine ourselves to see if we're acting like those people. Discerning or judging the body rightly, what Paul is saying is that you are not on, that if you are only concerned about yourself, then you are not discerning what the members other members of the body may need. Let me finish with Michael Heiser's words. He says, so what do we get out of the Lord's Supper? Well, we get what the Old Testament priests got by Paul's analogy. We have fellowship with God, which ought to cause us to show in gratitude, to grow in gratitude and thanksgiving that our sins have been forgiven already on the basis of the death of the sin offering. Again, the sin offering was a different offering from the one the priests ate of. When the, what the priests were partaking of was distinct from the sin offering. This was a distinct event from the bread and the wine now being consumed in the Lord's Supper. So again, Paul, by virtue of analogy, is distinguishing the event that saves Jesus' death and resurrection from the Lord's Supper. That isn't what contributes in any way to salvation or to forgiveness. This setting, the Lord's Supper being a communal meal to celebrate what Jesus had already done for us on the cross is the key to embracing a biblical theology of the Lord's Supper. Let this day reveal the living Christ anew and afresh in lives. Allow the taking of this cup to reaffirm your faith in Jesus and your part in this community of believers, which is his body. I want you to stay seated. However, I, I don't want you to sit by yourself. I would like for you to, if you need to move, Move and be with someone else. If it's your own family, fine. But if you can find someone else that, that maybe isn't, uh, uh, that's by themselves, and fine, and just go sit with them just for a minute. If you, I'll give you 60 seconds to do that if you would like. Just find somebody, sit with them, and let's do communion with our neighbor, with our friends, with our brothers and sisters people that we love and we care about, people that we are concerned about their needs and what they maybe have need of in their life. And I want us together to go ahead and you've had time to, um, does everyone have a communion cup? Okay, I think there's a few that didn't get it. I'm sorry, Bill, I should have had you, gave you notice before.
But I want you to go ahead and take the communion wafer. I mean, how many, do you think that one day you would like to do communion as a meal and as a supper? I, I, would, I think it would be wonderful. Times for testimonies of what God has done for you and how he saved you and changed your life. Okay. Does everyone have, if you don't have a communion cup, then raise your hand. Everybody? Okay. Let's just go ahead. Remember, the bread is his body. Let's just go ahead and partake of that. Then open up the juice cup and remember Jesus said that the juice, the wine, is his blood. It's a new covenant that we have with him. Let's go ahead and take that. Now remember, we're doing this in remembrance of him to proclaim his death or to proclaim the gospel. These are the reasons we're doing it. Two reasons. To remember him and proclaim him. Now I want you to do something unique that we've never done. Paul addressed the issue of people not waiting. They were just getting to the supper and they were eating and drinking and And he said, listen, you're not discerning the body's needs. You're doing this unworthily. You're not examining what's going on around you. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. The person that you're sitting with or the people that you're sitting with, spend a couple of minutes here and ask them, what are your needs? Do you have a physical need, spiritual need, material need? I would challenge you to go as far as to, if you can, if it's something, yeah, I don't have any food in my house. Maybe try to work something and help them. But what I'm asking you to do is be real with the people that we fellowship and worship with, that we participate and distribute and have communion with this koinonia we are sharers together in this so I want to ask you to be real and just talk to that person and and ask them what can you pray with them about what are their needs and as you do that and you pray with them I'm going to be saying a general prayer for all of the congregation so let's do that now father I thank you that I am a part of this wonderful fellowship of people. I thank you, Lord, that I'm a part of a group of people that love you, that love each other. And Lord, I pray that you would just open our hearts, that we would be willing to uh, share the good things that you have given to us and blessed us with. Lord, that we can have communion with our brothers and sisters 
Lord, that we can have communion with you and that together we have communion. And I don't mean just this bread and wine or cup and juice, but Lord, true relationship with our brothers and sisters, real relationship, true and real relationship with you. Lord, help us to pray for our brothers and sisters and for their needs. But Lord, not just to pray, but Lord, to act on them. Not just say that we care, but Lord, show that we care. Lord, not just say that we love others, but to show that we love others. And God, I pray that there would not be any need in this body of believers, in this local church, this local body that goes unmet. Lord, there may be people that are watching online that have needs. And I just pray, God, that they would reach out, Lord, and let those needs be known. Whether it's a car broke down that needs to be fixed or whatever it might be, I just pray that you would help us, God, to be willing to examine ourselves, discern the needs of the body, and meet those needs. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray.